to class podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. The Law of Love and the Law of Violence, written by Tolstoy in 1908, grapples with the concept of government and its role in society, bringing into question the morality of the mere existence of the state. Quote, Understand then, all of you, especially the young, that to want to impose an imaginary state of government on others by violence is not only a vulgar superstition, but even a criminal work. Understand that this work, far from assuring the well-being of humanity, is only a lie, a more or less unconscious hypocrisy, camouflaging the lowest passions we possess. In episode 7, we spotlight the true nature of the state, with an emphasis on exposing the evil horrors imposed by the vulgar superstitions of the unconscious hypocrite in all of us. The tragic event we explore today was the moment that would ignite the patriot militia movement throughout the 90s, a natural reaction to violent government repression of dissenting groups in America at the time. What would become known as the Siege at Ruby Ridge began on August 21, 1992 in Boundary County, Idaho, when six deputies of the United States Marshal Service came to arrest Randy Weaver under a bench warrant after his failure to appear on federal firearms charges. Our story, however, starts before the tragedy, in a desperate attempt to make sense of the unprovoked carnage explained away with a convenient narrative of a racist hate monger getting what's coming to him. Our reevaluation of the official story behind the 11 day siege implicates federal agencies in their manufactured self fulfilling prophecies, further growing their authoritarian reach and targeting the very people in society who would pose the greatest threat to the expansion of the state. Randy Weaver, an Iowa factory worker, U.S. Army engineer, and former Green Beret, moved with his wife and four children in 1983 to a cabin he built on Ruby Ridge in northern Idaho, about 40 miles from the Canadian border. Kevin Harris, a close friend to Randy, often stayed with the family in the cabin for extended periods of time. According to the official narrative, his wife Vicky took on the role of spiritual leader for the family, and by 1978 had begun having recurring dreams of living on a mountaintop and believed that the apocalypse was imminent. So in an attempt to escape a world corrupted, they fled to Idaho, where they could legally homeschool their newborn son Samuel. Reportedly, after the birth of their son, the Weavers began selling their belongings, and according to an article published at PBS, they visited the Amish to learn how to live without electricity, shortly before going through with the purchase of 20 acres of land in Boundary County, Idaho. A very well-written piece from the October 1993 issue at Reason.com with the title, Ambush at Ruby Ridge, elaborated briefly on the belief system practiced by the Weaver family, claiming, It has been pretty well established that Randy and Vicky were loosely affiliated with or sympathetic to the Christian identity movement, which holds, among other off-center beliefs, that the true descendants of the tribes of Israel are the modern nationalities of Europe. 
that today's Jews are imposters, and that Yahweh has fierce punishment planned for sinful America and its Babylonian occupational government. Christian identity believers claim to, to live by Old Testament laws to be the true heirs of Israel. Many or most are separatists. Unlike white separatists, separatists say they simply want to live apart from other races rather than persecuting or subjugating them. A Department of Justice report from June 10, 1994 in regard to the Ruby Ridge Task Force makes the claim that in 1984, Randy Weaver and his neighbor Terry Kennison had a, a dispute over a $3,000 land deal. Kennison lost the ensuing lawsuit and was ordered to pay Weaver an additional $2,100 in court costs and damages. Kennison wrote letters to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Secret Service, and the County Sheriff, in which he alleged that Weaver had threatened to kill Pope John Paul II, President Ronald Reagan, and Idaho Governor John V. Evans. In January 1985, the FBI and the Secret Service launched an investigation into allegations that Weaver had made threats against Reagan and other government and law enforcement officials. The Secret Service had been told that Weaver was a member of Aryan Nations, an anti-Semitic neo-Nazi white supremacist terrorist organization, and that he had a large weapons cache at his residence. Weaver denied these allegations, and the government filed no charges. In the 2002 book written by Jess Walter titled Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Weaver Family, he claims, on February 28, 1985, Randy and Vicki Weaver filed an affidavit with the county courthouse alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing the Weaver family. Reportedly by May 6, the Weavers sent President Reagan a letter claiming that their enemies may have sent Reagan a threatening letter under a forged signature. No evidence of such a letter surfaced, but in 1992 the prosecutor cited the 1985 letter as an overt act of the Weaver family conspiracy against the federal government. In the same 1993 article mentioned earlier found at Reason.com, they meticulously covered the ATF's involvement in the case with allegations of government agencies blatantly engaging in a cover-up due to illegal entrapment and the brutal slaughter of innocent people. In the piece, they even quote an alternate juror, who after being excused before deliberations were completed said, I felt like a little kid that finds out there is no Santa Claus. Journalist Alan Bach reported that, around October 1989, Randy Weaver was introduced to Gus Magasono, an alias for Kenneth Fadley a paid undercover BATF informant in the Aryan Nation. Magasono asked Randy to sell him two shotguns with the barrels sawed off, even showing him where to cut. Randy was reluctant, but Gus was persistent, and Randy was strapped for cash. Weaver finally sold him two shotguns for $300. Eight months later, a couple of BATF agents approached Weaver and asked him to serve as an informant within the Aryan Nation. They told him they didn't have a warrant. They did have incriminating conversations on tape. They threatened him with arrest and confiscation of his truck or house if he didn't cooperate. He refused. In December 1990, Randy Weaver was indicted for manufacturing, possessing, and selling illegal firearms. The difference between legal and illegal in this case was about a quarter inch of a barrel per gun. 
and a $200 tax stamp. On January 17, 1991, two BATF agents posing as a couple having engine trouble with a pickup truck hauling a camper stopped on the one-lane bridge leading to the Weaver property. Randy and Vicky stopped to help. When Randy looked under the hood, the male agent stuck a 45 caliber pistol to the back of his neck and announced he was under arrest. Other law enforcement agents piled out of the camper. Vicky Weaver was thrown face down into the snow and mud. Randy was taken into custody and later released on a $10,000 bond. Vicky was not arrested. The trial was originally set for February 19, 1991, then changed to February 20th for the convenience of the BATF. But probation officer Carl Richens sent Weaver a letter, dated February 7th, instructing him to appear on March 20th. Although Assistant U.S. Attorney Ron Howen, who later acted as prosecutor, knew Weaver had been sent an erroneous notification, he appeared before the grand jury on March 14th, six days before the date Richens gave Weaver, and got an indictment for failure to appear on February 20th. That set the stage. Beginning in February 1991, the United States Marshal Service developed a threat source profile on Weaver. Agents' failure to integrate new information into that profile was criticized in a 1995 report by a subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The subcommittee is concerned that as marshals investigating the Weaver case learned facts that contradicted information they previously had been provided, they did not adequately integrate their updated knowledge into their overall assessment of who Randy Weaver was or what threat he might pose. If the marshals made any attempt to assess the credibility of the various people who gave them information about Weaver, they never recorded their assessments. Thus, rather than maintaining the threat source profile as a living document, the marshals added new reports to an ever-expanding file and their overall assessment never really changed. These problems rendered it difficult for other law enforcement officials to assess the Weaver case accurately without the benefit of first-hand briefings from persons who had continuing involvement with him. A memorandum by Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorlick, dated April 5, 1995, cited in U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism Ruby Ridge report from 1996, opined that the assumptions of federal and some state and local law enforcement personnel about Weaver, that he was a Green Beret, that he would shoot on sight anyone who attempted to arrest him, that he had collected certain types of arms, that he had booby-trapped and tunneled his property, exaggerated the threat he posed. Again, covered thoroughly in Jess Walter's 2002 book, he claimed, Many of the people... The United States Marshal Service used as a third-party go-betweens on the Weaver case, Bill and Judy Grider, Alan Jeppesen, and Richard Butler, were assessed by the Marshals as more radical than the Weavers. When Deputy U.S. Marshal Dave Hunt asked Grider, Why shouldn't I just go up there and talk to him? Grider replied, Let me put it to you this way. If I was sitting on my property and somebody with a gun comes to do me harm, then I'll probably shoot him. An article written by Corey Brosnahan reports of a plan that had been hatched at the Marshal Service's headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. A deputy named Art Roderick came up with a long-term, three-part campaign he called Operation Northern Exposure. 
The first phase was to gather more intelligence. The second was to conduct intensive surveillance. Only after identifying when Weaver left the cabin or what kind of ruse might be employed to lead him away from it would the marshals enact the third phase, arrest. Idaho's Tragedy at Ruby Ridge, written by Sid Albright, reported then on April 18th, Geraldo Rivera reporting for the Now It Can Be Told TV show flew over the property in a helicopter and Weaver was later accused of shooting at it. There was no evidence of this, and even Richard Weiss, the helicopter pilot, repeatedly denied it. That didn't stop Marshal Service Wayne Duke Smith and FBI's Richard Rogers from using the alleged shooting as a justification for issuing new rules of engagement, instructions to their agents. Agents were told to use military rules of engagement, different to FBI standard deadly force policy. Later, Several snipers testified that they considered those orders to be a green light to shoot on sight. What would escalate into an 11-day siege, resulting in the cold-blooded murder of three people and the family dog, began on August 21, 1992, when six U.S. Marshals, outfitted in military camouflage, night vision goggles, and brandishing M-16 assault rifles, were sent to scout for a suitable area away from the cabin where they would be able to apprehend and arrest Weaver. Official reports from 1994 state that three of the deputy U.S. Marshals would form a reconnaissance team consisting of Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and Bill Deegan, while three others, David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, and Frank Norris, would form an observation post team on the north ridge from the cabin. Multiple reports have Roderick throwing two rocks at the Weaver cabin in order to test the dog's reaction, which in turn provoked the dogs. Weaver's friend Kevin Harris and Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sammy, followed after the dog they called Stryker in hopes that the dog had noticed a game animal since the cabin was out of meat. The recon team had reportedly retreated through the woods to a wide junction in the trails, about 500 yards west of the cabin, in an effort to remain out of sight. A 2012 book called Top Cases of the FBI claims Sammy and Harris followed Stryker on foot through the woods while Randy, also on foot, took a separate logging trail. Vicky, Sarah, 10-year-old Rachel, and 10-month-old baby Elisheba remained at the cabin. The op team were anxious at first, but then relaxed. In a Newsweek article from August 27, 1995, with the title, Every Knee Shall Bow, reported, Randy encountered the marshals at the Y. Roderick claimed to have yelled, Back off, U.S. Marshal, upon sighting Weaver. And Cooper said he had shouted, Stop, U.S. Marshal. Further summarized in U.S. Senate Subcommittee report on Ruby Ridge. By their account, Sammy and Stryker came out of the woods about a minute later, when the marshal's position was revealed by the dog Stryker, a yellow Labrador retriever. Deputy U.S. Marshal Roderick shot the dog dead. Seeing this, Sammy Weaver reportedly said to the marshals, You've killed my dog, you son of a bitch, and then shot in the direction of Roderick. Deputy U.S. Marshal Cooper then shot towards Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris, who both sought cover. Harris, once finding cover behind a tree stump, then returned fire with one unaimed shot, which eventually killed Deputy U.S. Marshal William Francis Bill Deegan. 
Fourteen-year-old Sammy Weaver, now retreating up a hill, was then shot in the back and killed by Deputy U.S. Marshal Cooper. Harris would later dispute certain details of the Marshal's account, including the fact that only after the shooting had started and Deputy U.S. Marshal Cooper was forced to take cover, did he identify himself as a U.S. Marshal. A few hours later, Marshal Dave Hunt made a 911 call to Boundary County Sheriff's Office stating that federal agents were trapped on a ridge in Naples taking heavy fire. The call, like much of the early story of Ruby Ridge, was less than true. It triggered one of the largest law enforcement operations ever to occur in Idaho. In the Justice Department report of the Ruby Ridge Task Force, shortly after the gunfight, the FBI was notified of the killing of a U.S. Marshal, and the Marshal Service Special Operations Group was alerted to deploy. Cecil Andrews, governor of Idaho, declared a state of emergency, allowing for the use of the Idaho National Guard Armory at Bonner's Ferry and to use APCs, better known as Armored Personnel Carriers. An elite tactical unit called the Hostage Rescue Team was sent from the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Eugene Glenn worked at the FBI office in Salt Lake City and was appointed Site Commander, also known as Special Agent in Charge, responsible for all active individuals from the FBI ATF in the United States Marshal Service. An article found at History.com provides a condensed breakdown of the official version of the events that occurred the morning after the initial firefight. On August 22nd, the FBI, under the impression they were entering an active, unprovoked firefight against U.S. Marshals, arrived on Ruby Ridge. As hundreds of law enforcement officers and federal agents surged into the area with the unusual orders to shoot any armed adult on site. FBI snipers set up a perimeter hoping to force Weaver to negotiate. Weaver had none of it, however, and ignored all negotiation attempts, even including pleas from his sister later in the week. After heading to the nearby shed where they'd brought Sammy's body earlier, Weaver and Harris, along with the Weaver's 16-year-old daughter, Sarah, trailing behind, were shot at by FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi, who thought the men were about to fire on a helicopter. Weaver was hit. The bullet had entered his back and exited his right armpit, and he, Sarah, and Harris headed back to the apparent safety of the house. As the men approached the house, Vicky stood behind the front door holding her infant daughter. Horiuchi fired again, hitting Vicky in the face and killing her. The bullet also seriously injured Harris. Horiuchi later claimed he didn't know Vicky was in the doorway and had his sights on Harris. Chaos ensued as Harris, Weaver, and his surviving family took cover in the cabin. With both Harris and Weaver wounded and Vicky and Sammy dead, the situation was grim. It seemed to confirm the Weaver's darkest suspicions about the federal government and the imminent apocalypse. Yet Weaver wouldn't give up. Outside the cabin, hundreds of protesters arrived to oppose the government's actions and grew increasingly agitated when they learned of the deaths of Sammy and Vicky. In order to really drive home the injustice that occurred the morning of August 22nd, we'll take in the detailed first-hand account that 16-year-old daughter Sarah Weaver gave to PBS. The morning after Sammy had been killed was rainy, cold, and quiet, until the dogs started barking again. Sarah's dad and Kevin headed out to see if someone was coming up the drive to finally talk about what had happened. But when they got out there, the dogs had stopped, 
and all was quiet again, or so it seemed to Sarah. She had followed the boys out to make sure that everybody was okay. She stood there looking out over the mountain. It was a little while before she realized that her dad had taken off towards the shed, where they'd brought the body of her brother. I'm going to go see Sam one last time, he said, and Sarah followed him, feeling like she needed to keep an eye on everybody. Her dad made it around the corner of the shed before she could catch up, and that's when she heard a gunshot. Sarah hurried over and found him around the other side of the shed, which stood between them and the mountain where the gunshot had come from. He was half crouched, holding himself. He'd been shot. He seemed shocked and confused, like he didn't realize what had happened. Sarah's survival instinct kicked in. She told her dad they had to get back to the house. She put her hand on his back and said, Go! At that point, Sarah's mother came out on the front porch. She was holding the door open, asking what happened. Sarah's dad said he'd been shot, and she started screaming for them to get in the house. Crouching, Sarah and her dad headed toward the front porch, with Kevin following behind them. Sarah was pushing her dad through the door next to her mom, who was holding baby Elisheba, and still screaming for them to get in, when she heard this giant boom right in her ear, like somebody had fired a gun next to her. She felt things hit her face. Her mother dropped to the ground, and Kevin fell into the house from behind her. Sarah was still standing, not understanding anything. It took her a second to comprehend that her mother had died, and that it was parts of her mother that had hit her face. Kevin was on the ground moaning. Her sister Rachel was screaming. Her father was screaming. Sarah's ears were still ringing. That's when her father scooped up baby Elisheba handed her to Rachel, and pulled Sarah's mom into the house so they could close the door. At that moment, it seemed clear that these people weren't here to talk. There would be no discussion. If Sammy's death had been an accident, Sarah thought, this certainly wasn't. The family was being hunted. Journalist Alan Bach would later report in 1993, as Kevin Harris tumbled into the house, another shot from the sniper went through the glass window and entered Vicki Weaver's temple, killing her instantly. The bullet and fragments of Vicky's skull went on to injure Kevin Harris's arm and torso, breaking a rib, puncturing one of his lungs. The sniper, Lon Horiuchi, was a West Point graduate armed with the state-of-the-art sniping equipment and trained to be accurate to within a quarter inch at 200 yards. He claimed he missed Kevin and hit Vicky by accident. But Bo Gritz, the former Green Beret commander who eventually negotiated Randy Weaver's surrender, said that after he became a negotiator, the FBI showed him a psychological profile of the family prepared for the marshal service before the siege that described Vicky as the dominant member of the family. Vicky was the maternal head of the family, Gritz told the Spokane Spokesman Review. I believe Vicky was shot purposely by the sniper as a priority target. The profile said, if you get a chance, take Vicky Weaver out. Meanwhile, upon arrival, hundreds of federal agents surrounded the cabin, setting up a base of operations down the ridge they would name Camp Vicky, after the dead wife and mother. Vicki Weaver.
And according to multiple reports, including an article written by Will Dabbs with the title, The Guns of Ruby Ridge, America Teeters at the Precipice. Negotiators during the siege called out such stuff as, Vicky, we have blueberry pancakes, in an effort at taunting the weavers. Though they later claimed they had not realized Vicky was dead, the effect on those within the cabin was absolutely inhumane. The report of the Ruby Ridge Task Force shows on August 23rd, repeated attempts to negotiate with Weaver via a bullhorn failed. There was no response from the cabin, and later it would be reported by that Monday, August 24th, the fourth day of the siege. Danny Colson, the FBI Deputy Assistant Director, wrote a memo with the headline, Something to Consider, and listed four considerations. One, charge against Weaver is bullshit. Two, no one saw Weaver do any shooting. Three, Vicky has no charges against her. Four, Weaver's defense. He ran down the hill to see what dog was barking at. Some guys in cami shot his dog, started shooting at him, killed his son. Harris did the shooting. He's in pretty strong legal position. Both men in the cabin had sustained critical injuries and Vicky's body would spend the next week lying in the kitchen covered with a sheet. The standoff wouldn't ultimately resolve until the FBI allowed third-party civilian negotiators to become involved because Randy had become so distrustful. By Sunday, August 30th, Bo Gritz, former Special Forces officer and Green Beret commander, would begin me mediation, finally being allowed to approach the cabin in an effort to convince Randy that they could end this with a peaceful conclusion. By this time, Kevin Harris's wounds were becoming infected and he had ur urged Randy to end his suffering by allowing him to surrender. Harris would be airlifted out by an Air Force medical evacuation helicopter and taken to a medical facility in Spokane. That same day, Randy also negotiated the removal of Sammy and Vicky's bodies, and the story goes, Four agents in full body armor came into the cabin and picked up Vicky's body, with Randy holding a gun in hand, stopped them and said, I'll kill you if you let her body touch the ground. The commander of the FBI hostage rescue team told Gritz he would resolve the standoff by launching an all-out tactical assault if he couldn't get the remaining weavers to surrender by a certain deadline. The next day, August 31st, Gritz would finally convince Randy to surrender by explaining to him this was their last chance to get out of the cabin alive. He had to leave in order to save his remaining children. Although, in the end, according to Gritz, the decision came down to 16-year-old daughter Sarah, who by this time had become so terrified the government wouldn't keep its end of the bargain, had been very reluctant to let her father surrender. Ritz recalled her dad saying, Sarah, we've got to do this. And finally his daughter agreed. According to the book Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Weaver Family, in the nine years since the standoff at Ruby Ridge, and in the six years since this book first appeared, much has happened, yet little has changed. Tens of millions of dollars have been spent on hearings and investigations that failed to resolve the most basic questions about the standoff. 
Almost $3.5 million was paid out in settlements that settled nothing. Nine years later, the courts are still flip-flopping over whether a federal agent should be tried for his actions at Ruby Ridge. Investigators, lawyers, and federal officers are still debating who shot first. Top FBI officials are still denying that they approved the Bureau's unprecedented and illegal orders to shoot civilians without provocation. Nine years later, the sniper who killed Vicki Weaver still works for the FBI. The case continues to hum on internet websites and scream from right-wing newspapers. The words Ruby Ridge are fixed at the bottom of every news story about the 10-year crisis of confidence and competence in the FBI. And every time a person holds up in a ramshackle house, every time a suspect refuses to come out, every time a person accuses the government of going too far, someone is likely to say, we don't want this to become another Ruby Ridge. The Weaver case gave a name to that sometimes dangerous space between people and their government. It brought paranoia into the mainstream. For how can you convince people that their government isn't out to get them when on Ruby Ridge, the FBI gave itself permission to shoot its own citizens? How can you tell people to trust a government that covered up details of the case and assigned agents to investigate themselves? PACCON, short for Patriot Conspiracy, it was a covert FBI operation that didn't just secretly infiltrate right-wing domestic extremist groups. The real objective in PATCON had been to seed infiltrators and to incite these fringe groups to violence. They even created fake militia groups like the Veterans Aryan Movement, as well as running entrapment-based sting operations. The official narrative claims that PATCON began in 1991 but would only last until July 15, 1993, six months after the disastrous siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. PatCon was directly overseen by Larry Potts, assistant FBI director who was later responsible for supervising the Ruby Ridge operation from FBI headquarters, which led to accusations that Potts approved the order saying FBI agents can and should shoot effectively changing the standard rules of engagement. This was the real story behind the siege at Ruby Ridge. PATCON operatives were even embedded in the FBI's SWAT team. As we come back around full circle, remembering the infinite wisdom of Tolstoy so many years ago, we must ask ourselves, who was the real enemy to fear that week on Ruby Ridge? Understand then, all of you, especially the young, that to want to impose an imaginary state of government on others by violence is not only a vulgar superstition, but even a criminal work. Understand that this work, far from assuring the well-being of humanity, is only a lie, a more or less unconscious hypocrisy, camouflaging the lowest passions we possess. Mm -hmm.